Alright, so here we go. It's an episode written by Ronald D. Moore and Joe Minoski, and directed by Jonathan Frakes. <laughs> this is funny. <clears throat> this episode, and the next one, actually, and a couple of the previous ones I've mentioned, all came out of, we're running out of room, we need scripts, come on, let's just make scripts happen. This was actually a script that had been workshopped many times before. In fact, it's hard for me to pinpoint the exact point in time at which they had started working on this script, because, um, well, they had already had several uh, workshop sessions during Season 5, so it's at least older than that. Now, uh, I'm going to go ahead and admit something up front. I like this episode. Now, I sound kind of confused because I don't remember liking this episode. One of the things I love doing these ruminations on, or for, one of the reasons why I love doing these ruminations is, that's a better way to put that, I find really turning on analysis mode and going through something helps to see things in a new light, rather than with, you know, sort of vague memories that are usually conflicting or sometimes take into account different things. Like, for example, if the last five minutes of an episode is crap, I'm probably going to remember the whole episode is crap, right? You know, stuff like that. But going back through this episode, I was like, this is actually pretty good. And I remember just being like, ugh, whatever, back when I first saw it. And in hindsight, I know why. It's because Mum, Lore Mum, didn't like it. And so I've actually skipped this episode on almost every repeat viewing. And if you'll remember, the most recent repeat viewing I was going to do, which was at the Blu-ray copies, I actually didn't do because I knew I was going to be doing this series. So in short, I haven't seen this episode since it came out in 93. <laughs> this is why I like re-going through some of this stuff, because it's like, oh, you know, modern perspective, right? <clears throat> then and now, if you will. Anyways, I did actually enjoy it. Obviously, it gives us some interesting things, but I'll talk about those later. First, we have to mention how Norman Lloyd is actually pretty awesome as Professor Galen. He does a good job with the role. Wonderful gravitas to it. Uh, if you don't know him, that's okay. He's a much older actor, obviously. A uh, bunch of Hitchcock stuff, you know. Good stuff, good stuff. We also see how skilled of an archaeologist Picard really is, because he IDs this artifact correctly to the era within minutes, which is insane. It's also 12,000 years old. And I'm going to mention this now. This is a, a relic that he will pick up in the ending of Generations, the film, and casually toss over his, his shoulder. Just, eh. I only point that out because this episode, first of all, Patrick Stewart does an excellent job of what I'm about to talk about. But everything is indicating that this is this incredibly rare, super value, valuable, immensely awesome artifact. And he's just going to be like, eh. Now, <laughs> I just mentioned this. Stewart gushes. He does a great job of gushing over this. And can I just say how awesome that is to see? Probably one of the things I like most seeing in someone else is seeing them gush about something they really love. Like, they truly dig into it. I'm not talking about, you know, oh, this this is a good drink. No, I'm talking about if such a person existed who was into, you know, seltzer water as like a hobby, and they had just found the the, the most amazing seltzer water ever, and they're like, 
Oh my God! And they just they just oh, and it's this, and it does this, and they start describing in exquisite detail how amazing it is, right? That kind of gushing, I love that. I love that so much. It's one of my favorite human interactions. It, not to imply that I'm not human yet, but <laughs> there's just something wonderfully wholesome about it. It's one of the reasons I tried it for most of my life to have at least a little bit of understanding of basically every field, every hobby, every category, so that I could at least start a conversation with someone and, you know, show interest in something they like so they can then gush about it. Because one thing I've also noticed is people like to gush. They like to be like, oh, this is amazing, right? So Stuart does a wonderful job of portraying that. And you can tell he's just, oh, oh my gosh, he's completely head over heels for it. Now, I hate to interrupt what is otherwise an excellent episode, but this is Joe Minoski's in a nutshell. This is one of three major parts of this episode that makes absolutely no freaking sense. This is an incredibly valuable artifact, right? He just, now he's not under Federation law per se, but he just goes to this planet, picks it up and brings it over here as a gift to Picard. That's not how that should work, is it? Vosh actually did stuff like that. Now, granted, she was paid, but it's the same concept. And Picard was all over her case about that, but here he's just like, oh, this is amazing. Because, I mean, you know, you can just do that, right? I mean, this doesn't belong in a museum. It doesn't need to be cataloged or... No, 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 no. I'll just put it on a shelf. <laughs> what? I mean, don't mistake me. I'm not arguing he doesn't appreciate it. It's just... I don't know. I can't even come up with an example. Imagine if you were offered... There's a hobby that you have. I know there is. Imagine if you offered something of immeasurable value in that hobby. And it was just being a gift to you. And it was basically stolen. To give to you. Like, okay, you're probably a Star Trek fan if you're listening to me this far. So let's say you're a Star Trek fan. <clears throat> and let's say that you're thinking, man, I really wish I had um, the original model of the original NCC-1701 from the original series. Which, if I'm not mistaken, doesn't actually exist anymore. But let's say it did. And let's say someone was like, here, and gave it to you as a gift. Uh, <laughs> like, can you see the problem with this? Funnily enough, there are actually things like that. Uh, I, I grant, Granted, I haven't been to Washington, D.C. in a very long time, but uh, the Air and Space Museum had one of the original models of an Imperial-class Star Destroyer from Star Wars there. Huge thing, too, like like several feet long. It's amazing. I actually have a picture of me next to it. It's great. Anyways, because <clears throat> that's probably where stuff like that should go, right? <laughs> Anyways, so... We find out that he has spent the last ten years looking into this particular mystery. Now, this is actually funny, because at first I was like, oh, here we go, years of work. But actually, this makes perfect sense. He has a shuttle and no contacts and no resources. Even though he is not actually a Federation... I mean, he's a Federation citizen, but he's not a member of Starfleet. He doesn't have access to a ship or to a ship's computer or its library or the diplomatic channels or any of the other things that, say, Picard has. <clears throat> he even makes a comment, which I actually think was very smart to put into the episode. He makes a comment that it's going to take him three years, he thinks, to finish this journey. But if he had access to a ship like this, eh, a couple weeks. <laughs> Cute. Cute little way to slide that in there. But it, it does make perfect sense. 
if you have access to a top-of-the-line starship and all the diplomatic resources and connections that that entails, yeah, you're probably going to be able to do this job a lot better and faster. It's almost amusing to me he never tries to petition Picard to do exactly that. He asks Picard to bail on his career of like 40 years at this point in order to go run around. <laughs> what? Anyways, I'm getting off topic. So then there's a scene where there's breakfast with Crusher. One of multiple scenes in this episode between the two of them. Gosh, if only the two had, like, done something that changed the dynamic of their relationship so that these could take on an additional meaning or have an additional little bit of tidbit of, of, of acting or personal significance as Picard discusses this issue with the one person he trusts most to be so honest and open with. <sighs> Just making my point. Don't mind me. Anyways, it's a good time to discuss this. And what I like most is that Picard manages to nail the complexity of the situation pretty well. You regret not going. Oh, no. No, no. He, he actually is firm in his choice. What he did was the right call, and he would do it a ten, ten times over again. I like that. Because, of course, he would. Picard has always been a man of a degree of certainty. And, of course, he's the kind of person who absolutely loves his career and his job. And he wouldn't trade that in for anything. We saw that a few episodes ago. However, of course it still makes him sad that he has to say no to the person who is effectively his father. Ironically, we also saw his biological father a few episodes ago. That man can go to hell. Maybe he's already there if he's in the white space with Q. But anyways, the point being, you saw how horrible he was, right? Whereas this guy, a little firm, you know, but caring, understanding, and of course, sharing a, uh, an interest. Right? That's what, that's what geeks really love doing. I know it's true. Geeks love sharing things that they are geeks about with other people. Whether it's video games or anime or computers or archaeology or cars or football or whatever. It doesn't matter. That's what, that, that's what really helps to define us. So, of course, the two hit it off properly. And so he has to say no to his father, which, of course, hurts him. He, his father, even, I, I say his father, the, the professor, Galen, says several things, clearly in anger, and he does go off for a bit. We're out here patrolling a dull, bloated empire, which is funny. I'm sure some people would actually describe the Federation like that. I wouldn't. They're not at the bloat part yet. Oh, they'll get there. <laughs> but the best part is, again, and this is credit to Norman Lloyd, the actor, he, does, he comes across not just as, as angry, he comes across as hurt. Like, this is, this is, this is a wound. He is offering, he, he, the only person in the galaxy he trusts with this, this most incredible, amazing achievement and, and discovery is Picard. No one else. That does say a lot. In fact, his final words are, uh, I, I was too harsh. It's the, it's the last thing he ever says. It says a lot that as he's dying, the last thing he wants to tell Picard is that he's sorry. That says something. Now this, of course, leads to a really nice bit. Because <clears throat> before, well, he had stuff to do. But this, well, someone was just attacked right on his doorstep. And, uh, you know, th that, that's, that's literally something that can take priority over some random diplomatic mission. By the way, quick aside, the Eurydians. You remember them, right? One of them sold information to Worf back in Birthright, I think, or whichever one of was, just a few episodes ago. Just interesting that they kind of 
carry that forward here. They don't show them, just the ship. But one of the really strange things here is they, they fire, like, one shot, and the ship blows up. And Riker's immediately like, Worf! And Worf's like, it wasn't me. I didn't do it. It was a normal shot. Now, the episode proper never actually explains what the hell happened. It just moves on immediately. Very Joe Minoski thing to do. It's okay, though. There was an explanation there. The explanation is... Drumroll. The Uridians were overloading their power generators, which then interacted with the phaser, which then made the ship blow up. Okay, so why were they overloading their power generators? See, even if we know the answer, it's still a Minoski thing. Because that is very Minoski. Who cares? Get to the good stuff. As I've said before, it's one of the biggest flaws in his writing technique, in my opinion. Moving on. So, this is actually... There's a really, really great scene. I'm sorry, I, I cut ahead a little bit. But Troy, just before the, the, you know, this whole attack that I just referenced happens... Troy actually sees Picard just standing on the side of the bridge, walks up and says, I, I, want, I, I could use a walk in the Arboretum. You want to join me? And Picard's like, yes, thank you. It's just a really small but really nice moment because that's kind of her job in addition to the fact that she's obviously his friend. So she wants to reach out to him. I mean, this is something that is obviously hitting him really hard. Then Galen dies. Then Picard's like, okay... I have my motivation for doing this. And, oh, funny thing, he has a ship and resources. Huh. I do love the bit. Troy then comes in later and is like, Sir, we have a schedule. And Picard's response is actually amusing to me. Because he's doing it for personal reasons. But I'm actually with him on this. The, the most renowned archaeologist in the galaxy was just murdered. Right on his doorstep. Finding out, and he was doing that right as he was about to go on some big mission. I would say that is probably the kind of thing that would override normal stuff. This is not some big peace conference between two warring powers that are at each other's throats. This is a regular, standard diplomatic conference. And Picard's kind of in the right to say this takes higher priority, and that is his call as captain. He probably should call it in to Starfleet Command, but this is still his call. He can basically push this off and delay. I mean, my point is there's degrees of, of, of acceptability, right? If he just decided to be, ah, screw it, I don't feel like it, for no reason, eh. If he decided to cancel it entirely, eh. If he decided to fly overhead with phasers blasting, eh, I mean, that might be okay. But the point is, what he does is actually fully acceptable, in my opinion. It's just he is doing it for personal reasons. Go figure. So, this then leads to some nonsense. There's parts of the, the DNA which is genetically sequenced to make a program. I, I don't even know where to begin with how stupid that is. I really don't. That is actual nonsense. If I just said to you, that would literally make more sense than what I just said previously. So, flargen, 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 the narkling, narkling, flargen, nark. You everyone with me? Okay, now, let's move forward. They decide to go and check out this other planet where all life on the planet's being wiped out. That was done by a Klingon, by the way. What, uh, how? How do they do that? Not answered. <laughs> it's like the third thing not answered so far in this episode if you're paying attention. Now, this is cute, and this is actually probably one of the better parts of the episode, in my opinion. So they encounter Oset and Nudok, right? 
Oset is the gull, the Cardassian, and Nudok is the captain, the Klingon vessel. Okay? Now, she tries diplomacy. It's the first thing she does. Say, so here, you know, uh, maybe we could work together. She also is the first one to bluff. I will destroy anyone who tries to go through here. She is also the one who, who is the first one to answer, yes, we do in fact have part of the code. And New Doc has to be convinced to it. New Doc also constantly is loud, abrasive, and irritating. Whereas she is polite and helpful and, and just generally warm and accepting, right? I mean, I'm, I'm overselling it a little bit, but a deliberate contrast is being built up between the two characters. This is then also contrasted by the fact that both of them share what they think it is. New Doc thinks it's a, some kind of great weapon, and she thinks it's some kind of power source. Now, quick aside. I like the idea of the Cardassian government being desperately interested in something that is a power source. Remember, and we know this especially thanks to Deep Space Nine, for all of Cardassia's pretensions at power, they're not actually doing great. Their infrastructure is crap. Just garbage. It's one of the reasons why the Klingons are just going to roll right over them when, when we get to that later in DS9's run. So, um... The idea of some new, very efficient power source, like a, like a recipe or a program or whatever for that, yeah, I could see that being very valuable to the Cardassian people. Remember, in this setting, power literally equals matter, so that's resources in a very literal sense, in addition to the more usual uh, uses of electricity and energy and so forth and so on. So, that's fun to think about. Anywho, <clears throat> so... This then leads to, so she's like, yes, of course, we shall work together, and I shall give you all this stuff, and blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, New Doc goes to Data, challenges him to the thing, is immediately obliterated, which admittedly amuses me. Then he tries to bribe Data, which Data immediately says, is that a bribe? No, no, of course not. This is why I like this whole se sequence. A Cardassian will smile and say hi, and be polite and kind, and as soon as you turn your back and they find it advantageous, they will stab you in the back. A Klingon will walk up and be like, what are you looking at, weirdo? Come on, let's fight. I challenge you to a fight. And then if they, if they find it the reason to do so, they will try to kill you in the front. However, obvious, I'm presuming from both of these scenarios that these are enemies. A Klingon who is your enemy will kill you to your face. A Cardassian that is your enemy will stab you in the back. Now, there's pragma pragmatic reasons for, for this, and we can discuss the highs and lows and whatnot, but the difference in approach is very important. Personally, I'd rather take the Klingon, especially since the Klingon would be the easiest to convince not to do that. Go figure. So LaForge notices the tampering, and they fiddle with the program, and they work together with Nudoc to make this whole thing work. Because a Klingon will also be a lot more likely to work with you once you demonstrate that you actually know what you're talking about as soon as you stand up to him, too. Whereas a Cardassian will pretend to cooperate, but is secretly still scheming against you. It's a nice touch, and it's a very amusing red herring, especially for people who are not used to either species at this point in history, since, you know, Cardassians are more being established over on the other show. Now, <laughs> so this leads to uh, the awful, awful set. They go to this place... And they see this stupid... It, it looks like a set. It looks like crap, if I could just be blunt. Now, I know they were running low on funding, because that's how that works. A lot of the budget of late Season 6 went into Descent. And so they were 
kind of fleecing some of these episodes. This episode was actually supposed to be even lower budget than it was. Remember, Birthright went over budget, so they're they're having some issues balancing the books here. But at the same time, I kind of get why they had to. See, the problem is they wanted to do a location shoot, but the point is this is supposed to be a place devoid of life, like with a few bit of bits of moss or lichen that survived. Where are you going to find a spot like that, anywhere near Southern California, that is relatively acceptable and easy to reach in order to film? And you get the problem, right? So, okay, I'll forgive them that. So then the DNA program ugh, reconfigures the tricorder to, to leave a message in, 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 holo, in a hologram. I'm sorry, this is breaking my brain at how stupid that is, but let's just move on. That leads to the speech. I actually like the speech. I really do. It's very Star Trek in its own horrible way, for all its good and for all its bad. The idea that there was a race that was the first one to the stars makes sense. And the fact that they were lonely. That they realized that at some point in time they would be gone. And so they went around and seeded life on basically everywhere so that someday there would be more races and those races would go to the stars and would not be alone. The ideas of bonding and being together be despite and indeed because of differences, that kind of unification, that's kind of an awesome idea, actually. So yeah, I'm kind of with it. And not just because she's the female changeling. <laughs> I, I can't be the only one who finds that funny. She... <laughs> It, it, she's played by Salome Jens. Salome Jens, excuse me, uh, which I'm still probably pronouncing wrong. The woman who plays the female changeling. The villain of Deep Space Nine. No, not Dakot, it's her. It's not even Kai Wynn. <laughs> Actually, I have heard a lot of wild theories that the, the race presented here is related to the changelings because of how old and how this was done and blah, blah, blah. There's not any strong connections. You know what there is a strong connection to? The Preservers, which I almost called them by accident, because I've always just kind of automatically assumed these were the Preservers. I was having a discussion with friends of mine, uh, this would have been high school at this point, about this episode, and I sort of talked about, I, w I just kept referring to them as the Preservers. One of my friends was like, where are you getting the Preserver thing from? Well, it's some of the episode, isn't it? No. And so I looked it up, I had, I had this book, uh, a companion guide, and I was like, oh my god, you're right! And at the time, I didn't know that it was actually a deliberate intent to have this be a reference to the Preservers. He just didn't put it in the script. So, technically, you could say these are the Preservers, but it's a matter of debate. I'm curious what you guys think. I know STO makes them the Preservers, <laughs> so there's that. There's also a really cool scene where the Romulan reaches out to Picard. Doesn't have to. Just says, maybe someday, you know? I liked that. I really did. There's an old quote, and I'm going to butcher here. It's something along the lines of, the things that connect us, the, the things we have in common, outweigh the things we don't. It's an interesting quote, and I, I just butchered it, of course. It's, it's just a cool idea. And I have to admit, seeing that scene retroactively made me appreciate Star Trek Online even more. And I know I reference that game constantly, but... Playing as a Romulan in STO and joining the Federation and then becoming part of the Galactic Alliance suddenly has a lot more meaning to it. I'm glad I got to rewatch this one. I wouldn't have if not for you guys and for this show, so thank you very much for that. I hope you enjoyed my thoughts. 
and uh, flinging the curl on Nesco. <laughs> I still can't believe he does that. I, I, I'll talk to you next time, guys.